Welcome to I Spin on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles, and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are revisiting the 1980s with our final look at the horror icons of that decade. Today, we'll be discussing the legend of Michael Myers, Myers' M.O., and the forgotten woman behind the mask, Deborah Hill. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. Excellent. So I'm kind of excited to be finishing off this, you know, the horror icons of the 80s. Yeah. With a pretty big one, I think. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting discussion because I, I definitely had a big realization this month about this series and how I'm not really a fan. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I think I saw Halloween, the original, a bit later on as a teenager. I don't think it was one of those like seminal films that I watched at my epic sleepovers as a kid. I feel like I started watching the series a bit later on, but it's definitely been in my life for at least, you know, 15, 20 years. And it's still ranked as my number two out of the big three. For myself, I saw Halloween much later in life. Um, actually, I saw it maybe like three years ago when I first really started engaging in the in the horror genre I actually saw Black Christmas before I saw Halloween so I think that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. and definitely the faculty of horror had some influence on that because they talked about those two films and so I was more interested in Black mm-hmm. Christmas so saw the first one for the first time years ago and then I watched the second one with a good friend of mine Dave Carty a while ago and had a good laugh about that and then yeah and then this month I got to finally see a season of The Witch for five I actually, no, sorry, was introduced to Halloween H2O in when I first had a sleepover. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> a long okay. time ago. So you started with H2O. I started with H2O, yeah, because of Josh Hartnett. Everyone had a crush on him. Oh. So we had to, of course, see of like course. one of those movies of that decade. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's really H2O. And then I saw the original much later <laughs> in life. <laughs> I think that's a fun way to see it because I am a huge fan of Halloween H2O mm. and also loved it in the 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. It was definitely one of those, those big movies for me as a teenager. So I think that was a great introduction into the franchise. Yeah, I, I would say so too. You know, they were part of that era of like the big stars, like that cast, like what do they call it? The ensemble of all those different yep. stars and stuff like that in those horror movies, like, you know, Scream and Urban Legends and all that. Oh, and I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Oh, my unholy trinity of teen screams from the 90s. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about our likes and dislikes. Uh, so for me, I'll start with the original and then go into the franchise as a whole, because folks, if you don't know, we watched Halloween one through five, because again, we're sticking with just the 80s yes. releases. Nothing after that. Thankfully, only five movies this month and not eight like last time. Oh, my God. That was insane. <laughs> but the that thing is, though, is... was insane. Yeah, five. But then I also watched H2O, H4O, and then I'm currently with one of my partners <laughs> watching the Rob Zombie versions because she's a huge fan right. of the Rob Zombie Halloween, so... Wow. This has been a big month for you. Yeah. You're, like, banging out a lot oh, in the actual God. franchise. Yeah. My, my, <laughs> Michael Myers and I are going to need a break after all this. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh. I don't blame you. It's a lot. So for me, the OG, there's so much that I actually really love about 
Halloween. I love its premise. It's very simplistic score. God love you, John Carpenter, mm. and your scores. Yes. The cinematography, and it's just this infamous, incredibly well-done, low-budget horror movie. It's scary. Again, picture yourself when this came out in 1978. Like, this is a horrifying movie. I love all the POV shots, you know, one of the originators of that. Of course, Laurie Strode and one of the beginnings of the final girl trope. So I do really love that about Halloween, the original, the franchise. I like it a lot. And it is still number two in, out of the top three. Okay. It definitely is a strong contender for, for number two. And after rewatching, because it's been a number of years since I revisited the series, it's very dark. And I didn't realize how dark this franchise really is. It is, yeah. And rewatching and doing a lot of research, it's like, it's the darkest out of the three. And it's, I think, very interesting. Okay, besides Resurrection. Resurrection gets a little bit of a parody and it's not very serious and it's kind of silly, but that's fine. They all, it happens eventually. Mm. But the tone of pretty much all the films in the franchise, it's very bleak, it's very dark. And I can appreciate that. I like it very, very much. I respect and appreciate that this franchise overall never became a parody or very formulaic like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. And then, of course, course, Dr. Loomis. (laughs) He is probably the most quotable character in horror cinema ever. Everything he says is just dark and grim (laughs) and very bleak. Like everything is so serious all the time. Just like literally anything he says is just gold. It's gold. Yeah. What's going on out here? Call the police. Tell the sheriff I shot him. Gentlemen, he's still on the loose. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. How about you? Um, so my likes for this film, I think it, you would ha- I would have to agree with you on Jar Comforter's score, because we both know that you and I are big fans oh. of just in his movies in general and the score that he always provides to each one. So classic, mm. iconic. I love the character of Laurie Strode and also not a fan of, of her characterization, but I think this comes because of she was the OG final girl and mm-hmm. we, the, you know, that formula was based upon her and how she originally was, you know, was or supposed to be seen mm-hmm. as like the good girl, the virgin. And we know. Mm-hmm. So, of course, as a woman, uh, almost like what, a decade? century later I guess I don't know whatever (laughs) Um, 40 years 40 years later you kind of want to see a different type of final girl right and so I respect for in in terms of the sense of the origin of the final girl and the character of Mm. Lori but like when you get someone later on like in the nine in the 80s with Nancy you're like Nancy Thompson you're just like oh my god like this is the final girl that I want to see right the one who just Mm -hmm. she's a good girl but she's also uh, into survival so uh-huh. Yes, she is. So, funny enough, like, out of the three OG, I put Michael Myers uh, down at the bottom in terms of my mm. uh, my three. is like, for me, it's, like, Freddy, Jason, and Michael. Only because, and I think because of the way you said it's very dark and very grim, and I think, and then maybe, and that's probably where the strength lies for this uh, franchise, is that it is so dark and so grim that in the research that I was doing, I felt very uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. because of everything. It was really starting to represent. So I think that's great in the sense of like like the franchise does that in a way that makes it uncomfortable for you to like it. But then I also feel like it loses it 
it let, loses itself over time. Just like later on with like four and five, I think I tried to watch The Curse of Michael Myers and I just kind of didn't really get into it um, mm-hmm. because like they really try to add that whole element of like a cult and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so I'm just like, I'm just, I can realize I'm just not a huge fan of this series. However, and I will say this later on that there's a character, a final girl, I consider her in the fourth movie Rachel, totally. Jamie's uh, stepsister or whatever. Yeah. We should talk about her more because she's fucking badass. Loved her. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yes. Fantastic. And then, of course, early in number five, she has to die uh, as, right? per, as per the rules of slashers. Yes. And yep. yeah, folks were quite upset when that happened because Rachel is fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, like you are correct. She's I agree. an amazing final girl. Yeah. Yeah. And just like so adorable and great acting. She was fantastic. Yeah. So you kind of talked about your dislikes. My dislikes would be uh, Michael Myers kills dogs. Oh, yeah. He just doesn't. Many times. Nobody else. Ki- like Freddy doesn't kill dogs. Yeah. Jason definitely doesn't kill dogs. Yeah. Come on, Michael Myers. Well, you know, he's a fucking he's a creep. And he is terrible. Yeah. So that makes sense. I mean, it goes. It's on brand for him to want to kill children and kill dogs. Well, That's how you know he's been there. Which is interesting because <laughs> we don't, like, I, I know he's trying to kill, like, his uh, niece, Jamie, but I, I'm trying, I'm thinking back into, like, Halloween, the 2018 version, and I remember sitting in the cinema watching, and there's a particular scene where Michael Myers, he goes to the house, and there's, like, a baby, and I remember I was on a date with someone at the time, and I could feel that person, like, cringe, because they're just like, oh my god, Michael's gonna kill the baby, and I'm just like, no, he's not, they're not, Michael's not gonna kill the baby, and he doesn't, right? But that mm-hmm. is also not on brand for Michael Myers, right? He just wants to kill everything. Right. That's that's true. Though the baby isn't really in his way, so I can kind of that kind of makes sense to me. Well, it would make it makes sense. Honestly, to me. though, I think it would make more sense in a Rob Zombie version because Michael Myers just kills everyone in Rob Zombie's yeah. films. Just yeah. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other things I don't like. There's multiple plot holes mm. throughout the franchise. Some things that don't really make sense. Yeah. Which, you know, that goes with all all of the, you know, top three horror icons of the 80s. All of those. That's fine. But I find it a bit more apparent in this. So after Michael Myers is in the explosion in number four, why do they keep him alive? Like, we know. We know that he kills people. Mm-hmm. Why are we keeping him alive? Yeah, like, why don't they just give him lethal injection? Just kill him. Just let him die. Yeah. Because we know well, there's many reasons why. We all know why. Um, how does he learn to drive? Yes. How and why does he remove his sister's tombstone to make such a spectacle? Yeah. He, also, you'd have to be very strong to do that. But why Why do that? Mm-hmm. Really, like, really, when you think of it logically... And the two main things was when I was watching number four and five, I was shouting at the TV. Why is Jamie in Haddonfield? Why do you also, why do you tell a child what her uncle is? Yeah. Like send her away far, far away. Don't tell her where she is. Like, don't tell her, sorry, who she is, where she comes from. Or maybe when she's an adult, why do you tell a tiny child that her uncle tried to kill her mother and he is like this insane murderous beast why would you do that and also why is she still in Haddonfield and also going into number five why does Haddonfield have its own center for children also why is she still in Haddonfield (laughs) send her away that poor child nothing makes sense like just send her away 
who are these oh people related to her? Like, yeah, all of it. Just, just why is she in Haddonfield? Oh, God. Anyways, I just felt incredibly bad for that child. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, any other, like, main dislikes for you? Well, I was going to say, like, I like in 4 and 5, I really like, was starting to, like, dislike the character of Dr. Loomis and, and how I, like, mm-hmm. didn't really care much for his characterization. But then when I would try to, like I said, watch the Rob Zombie version and saw Malcolm McDowell trying to do Loomis, I started to really appreciate mm-hmm. Dr. Loomis. <laughs> like, Donald mm-hmm. Pleasant's version of Dr. Loomis. And be like, yes, this makes more sense to me. <laughs> so that definitely changed. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. So now we're going to talk about the legend of Michael Myers, our horror icon, and his, or its, impact on the horror genre. So there are many thoughts, many opinions, and theories behind Michael Myers. And it can change from just watching Halloween 1, you watch Halloween 1 and 2 together, you get that family element, mm-hmm. that which generally carries on into 4 and 5. The end of 5, you start bringing in the Cult of Thorn. 6, it's Cult of Thorn. Anyway, so you kind of carry on. So there's multiple theories, a lot of different opinions. You know, there's the psychosexual, phallic um, theories from Carol Clover. Again, I was reading John Kenneth Muir and... He had a variety of different theories and thoughts that maybe, you know, Michael Myers is Laurie Strode's id. He is the the representation of her id. Not going to go into that, but it's just fascinating that there are so many different thoughts and and opinions and theories about this because not everybody is super satisfied with just thinking, oh, he's just evil and we're going to leave it at that. Which, if you just look at Halloween 1, then fine. Mm. But some of us just want to think more about it. So, which I think that in itself has quite the impact on the genre because it keeps people talking and having these conversations, which I don't think they have with Freddy or with Jason because they're pretty straightforward, whereas Michael Myers is not. Yeah. So, Michael Myers. Or he's listed as the shape in the Halloween credits. Yeah. But generally speaking, right now, we will call him Michael Myers. Later on, he will become the shape. So Michael Myers, you know, his movements are very slow. He walks everywhere. You know, he's slow. He's purposeful. He has very minimal or any body language whatsoever. He never speaks. There's a lot of heavy breathing. He doesn't make any sounds when he's injured. Um, He's always kind of like leering and looming and skulking about. Again, generally different than the the other two. Uh, Michael Myers, he's dehumanized, like those reasons that I just stated. And he wears a mask. And a quote that from an article, I'm sorry, it's one of the ones that we will reference that says, he's presented not as a full human being, but as an empty and therefore monstrous husk. Like he lacks all humanity. Mm. And we know this. And variety of Loomis quotes in (laughs) Halloween movies. Love him. God love him. He says, no reason, no conscious, no understanding. Even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, good or evil, right or wrong. That's about Myers. And that he has the devil's eyes and that he is purely and simply evil. He also says, this isn't a man twice. So Michael Myers is the inhuman monstrous other, which is interesting because that's kind of a break in the genre because they really lean into this whole he's evil label. 
It's not really something that we had seen before and that we really talk about now and see now, but they really leaned into he's just evil and he's just killing. No one can stop him. We don't know how to stop him, which is interesting. And I think that is one of the reasons why people do love this franchise and how it continues on for so long. And I had to look up where this mask, where the mask comes from, because I've always heard about the William Shatner reference, yeah. but I didn't really get it. I was like, it doesn't really like look like William Shatner. So what is this all about? So now we all can know, or at least for me, <laughs> there is a movie from 1975 called The Devil's Reign, which stars William Shatner. So they make a mask of his face in the movie. So in Halloween, they paint it white. Yeah. Very white and not like skin colored. And then that becomes the face of the shape. Wanted to find that out. And now I know. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons why it's so iconic is because it's also one of the most successful independent horror films films of its time and like Kelly uh, already went into it created very memorable characters from Michael Myers Mm -hmm. Laurie Strode and of course Dr. Loomis Mm. and what's also one of the reasons why it was such a successful independent horror film was because Carpenter came out with suspense all about watching the first Halloween film it's all about the suspense it's all about the building up of the scenes of dread leading us to that violence so I feel like this is kind of what some of the horror movies uh of like late like kind of of the like last couple years or so are kind of missing because sometimes the violence is always there and it's always happening but you don't always get that suspense whereas in Halloween you're building Mm. you're always building up to that one of the things about um, what also makes Halloween so such an incredible series too in franchises because it's very minimalist in its style. And it's yeah. very, like yep. like I said, he focuses on the fact that we have this uh, guy named Michael Myers. He just kills. And you know what? Yeah, eventually you find out later that there's this relationship with his sister or something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't go into too much detail. And I don't think it's until the sixth one where they where they, you see they bring in the Cult of Thorn that we get more yeah. of this like, oh, he's... he's personified or something like that but in the first four you don't get that you just know that he is just there he's just hunting down members of his family mm-hmm. and killing them yeah. very minimalist but it also allows for this interpretation to come in where we kind of see like the nature of evil america and how you know mental illness can be explained away by that of being evil so i think it was really interesting how there's this like link between like and dr loomis says it all the time like oh he's evil incarnate right and like mm-hmm. so if there's like this form like once again like we talked about this in um our possession episode where a lot of times uh mental illness is always a has times associated with like demonic possession so mm-hmm. you know we don't know if michael myers is ill or what what his mental state is but ultimately yeah. because he's mentally ill and he's killing people he's less evil he's less evil incarnate so he's probably demonically possessed in some way shape or form what's really nice too is that the halloween genre itself we get the start of the slasher genre but we also get the trend of the dead teenager films so mm-hmm. a new genre of horror that comes out which if you misbehave you die so we get that <laughs> just as simple as that, you know, and we know that this all starts with Michael Myers because he goes after um, Lori's friends, Linda and Annie, who are, you know, promiscuous or they're, you know, they're drinking and smoking and he kills them. And then later on, that's going to be that type of genre will be carried out with Friday the 13th and all the other slasher films that come after that. And I know Kelly said, like, we're, and we're going to talk more about him later as the shape. But what's really nice, and this is why where the legend of Michael Myers really comes out, is because we get this legend of the shape or this idea that the shape is an absolute in the franchise. There is no backstory. There is no motivation. It is just 
evil killing. He is a force of nature that no one can be prepared for. Like, and it's interesting that he comes out in a modern society and people are fully unprepared of how to fight him or how to deal with mm-hmm. him. Michael mm-hmm. Myers is always able to come up upon his victims. They're always unsuspecting and he attacks them. So it's interesting too, that leads back into that dead teenager genre is that parents have no way of protecting their children because they don't know when this, this being is going to appear and kill you. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. he just strikes. Yeah. And this is where the legend of Michael Myers comes from and the legend eventually too of the shape because the shape's power is in his mystery and is not in his backstory and who he is. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So we reached out to Twitter and did a couple of polls and with some interesting surprising results yes. and some great comments. So f- first off, we... <laughs> had to pit Halloween H2O against Halloween H4O to see what people are into. And in my opinion, (laughs) sadly, Halloween H4O pretty much won by a landslide and it was 61% against Halloween H2O at 39%. Which is so interesting because I agree with you, Kelly. I think H2O is the better film than H4O. And the reasons why, one of the main reasons why I agree with you, and we've talked about this privately and personally, but I highly recommend everyone to read Jess's recent blog post because she pretty much hits the nail on the head as to the main reasons why I much prefer Halloween H2O to Halloween H4O. I was very underwhelmed by H4O. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the next Twitter poll that we came out with was asking people, what is the favorite of the 80s releases? So Halloween 2 to 5. And results were interesting again. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, 67%. And then another landslide. Another landslide, yeah. Intense about this movie. Yes. (laughs) And then Halloween 2 at 21%, and then Halloween 4 at 13%. Wowzers. So I thought that was, that's really interesting. And like, and like I said, it's that resurgence of Season of the Witch. People are just loving that film again. Let them have it. I love cult films. I love when films have a cult following. So even if I'm not involved with it, I still love the fact that people love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's fantastic. A couple of uh, notes from Twitter and Instagram. So we asked everyone, why do you love the Halloween franchise? So on Twitter, at Armored Foe said... I have to say I love the Halloween franchise from the sheer simplicity of what it is. A slasher with a, quote, regular guy. It's pure atmosphere. So at Light Chris, for me, it's that he is a real person. So it seemed more frightening. He wasn't a revenant like Freddy or whatever we might say Jason is. Yeah. Yeah, So another note about him being a regular person, which is interesting because that changes. Yes. At first he's a regular person, but he's evil. Yeah. But maybe he's just a human that's evil. And then it comes into he's a supernatural being. So again... I love this. Um, And then from Instagram, there were two responses. One just was simple elegance, which I'm sure they're referring to Halloween, the original, which I totally agree with. That movie is so beautiful. And the other one was great villain, great mask and music, has fun, suspenseful characters, mostly well-made films on the best holiday. Well, we all can agree that Halloween is the best holiday. It sure is. I definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks to everyone who participated and sent in their responses. Yeah. Couldn't have shot him six times. You think I'm lying, Sheriff? I think you missed him. No man could take six slugs. I've told you this isn't a man. So now we're going to look at the characters of both Laurie and Jamie Strode. So our final girls 
or kind of like survivors of family violence and also kind of discussing more of how Michael Myers is a representation of masculinity. So beginning with Kelly, your thoughts on this? Yeah, so our research into this movie, I think took a very unexpected dark, uncomfortable turn. Yeah. We we found some really fascinating articles about Michael Myers, who pretty much from now on will be called The Shape, because that's who he becomes quickly in Halloween, the original. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about some dark subject matter, because I think this is essentially just where we, we ended up. Yeah. And... So there's a couple of articles. The first one, which we'll we'll talk about, was called Michael Myers, The Shape of Masculinity by Alex Pagluica. So generally speaking, this article talked about masculinity in how the shape is the representation of the worst of masculinity. So Michael Myers sees Laurie while he's in his childhood home and then becomes fixated on her, yeah. which early in Halloween can explain the reasoning behind it but again we get into later into the series and it's just not a satisfactory explanation this whole like he's evil that's not satisfactory there's more to him than meets the eye and that i feel like the whole evil label is just very convenient it's spooky it's grim and i generally can get behind the grimness of evil yeah (laughs) (laughs) but what's even more dark and grim is the reality of toxic masculinity Mm. Yes. So the shape, like I said, is the representation of the worst of masculinity. He is hidden in plain sight. He is behind safe faces and places. The shape is emotionless. He is expressionless, except for what we sometimes see as anger and what Loomis says to him in number five talks about his rage and his anger. And that brought me to a moment in number five where you could see a bit of emotion, which was anger. So in Halloween five, the shape kills Tina's boyfriend and he's put on a Halloween mask, a different one, and he's pretending to be Tina's boyfriend. So he's in a car and she comes in. And of course, he's not speaking because he doesn't. And she's talking to him and acting sexy and flirting. And you can see Michael, like the shape, tensing and his hands on the steering wheel just tightening up as she's talking to him. So there is some underlying anger towards, I'm going to say towards women because we don't really see him express too much emotion overall. And that was just like a clear example of his rage. Well, especially because we see throughout, especially in the first one, but then we'll also see throughout the rest of the films, like his kills when it comes to men and women, very, very differently. Men get killed mm-hmm. very quickly, whereas the women, he stalks, he he like he, he follows them, he lurks behind them, he hunts them, yeah. and then he kills them. And usually it's in a pretty drastic way. And then he some way, shape or form, dr- like displays their body in a way that like, you know, shows like, this is what I can do. Like, you can't stop yeah. me. Totally. Which reminds me of, it's number four, where he literally takes a shotgun and does not shoot that young woman. He drives it through her body and yes. just hangs her right up on the wall. Doesn't even shoot her, which of course that would bring a lot of, it's loud, it bring a lot of attention to what he's doing but I don't think that's the point I don't think that matters for Michael at the end of the day like he's gonna kill everyone he's in his way so whether people hear him or not is no is no no difference so he just drives that shotgun directly through that young woman so the shape like I said he's emotionless he's expression expressionless and seemingly the only emotion that he does have is anger and this is very similar to how men are supposed to act They're not supposed to express their feelings, have emotions, 
anger seems to be fine. Aggression, violence, anger, tension. They're all ex- apparently acceptable forms of emotion. And those are the emotions that are okay for men to express, which is unfortunate and very sad. We're all socially conditioned in our own way. Men are not exempt from social conditioning. Yeah. This article brought up an interesting aspect of gaslighting. Mm. And so this is one of the worst aspects of masculinity. It, I feel like it really stems from insecurity and aspects of obsession. And these are aspects that, that I also believe that are strongly encouraged in heteronormative and monogamy and monogamous relationships. This aspect of, I own you, you're the only person for me, that you can't like talk to anyone. Like it's just, it stems from such a place of insecurity and the shape stalks women, especially if you think about the first movie, he stalks Lori, makes her think she's going crazy and isolates her because he wants to have her all to himself. Yeah. And we still, even now, we don't know why he does what he does. He never states why. We can't see him enjoying his work. Like, Freddie loves what he does. We can see his face. He's not hidden behind a mask. Um, And like, you know, we talked about, he's given this kind of MO of like, oh, he's evil. Oh, he's evil. So that's fine and that's acceptable, I guess. Like, that is, that's just not enough for me. And that, I think, comes down to, again, the similarity to men in our society. And like this article talked about, rarely do we ever get down to the nitty gritty of why men act the way that they do and behave the way that they do. The shape can be literally anyone. And that is also, I think, what he represents. He has the mask of a man on his own man face, and he could be anyone. He could be any man in your life lurking and stalking you. And we do see that. So in Halloween 2, we find out that the shape is related to Lori. He is Lori's brother. She is his sister. And guess what? Most violence against women and girls are perpetuated by men and men that they know. In a domestic setting, yeah. Totally. So one quote from the Assaulted Women's Helpline. On average, every six days, a woman in Canada is killed by her intimate partner. In 2009, 67 women were murdered by a current or former spouse or boyfriend. And over half of Canadian women have experienced at least one incident of physical or sexual violence, you know, since the age of 16. And I believe Lori is 16 or 17. She's 17. So she is the same age as Michael's sister, Judith, at the time of her own murder. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So a couple of other really great aspects of this, this article, disturbing, interesting aspect. In the, in the article, here's a direct quote. In Halloween, the fictional town Haddonfield we're introduced to doesn't have men who beat or rape their wives or abuse their children or are given to acts of violence in defense of their masculinity when challenged by other men in the bars, living rooms, garages, and bedrooms. Haddonfield has the shape. As if this violence is inescapable, it suggests that even if we could somehow strip the violent men out of our lives, cities, and towns, we still have the specter of masculinity to fear because the shape would just take their place. You know, maybe Michael Myers lived in an abusive home. I don't think that's the case, but we don't know. We never get to know that aspect of his life. We don't know. It's never explained. It's not discussed. We kind of just have to take things at face value and draw our own conclusions. So an interesting point of, you know, talking about masculinity being the cause of all of this Another quote from the article. The other piece of supporting evidence is that Michael commits his first act of violence at age six. 
which is when the identification with gender starts to become most solid in boys. Nothing in the film suggests that there was anything unusual or abnormal about Michael prior to Halloween night in 1978. It's that night when he kills his sister that he becomes the shape. And coincidentally, the same age boys tend to start being more aware of the expectations of gender and masculinity. Michael no longer exists after that night, which is why he goes directly to acquire a mask before going about his grisly business. This franchise endures 40 years later and continues on. And particularly the the original is still like an infamous like horror classic, probably one of the best horror movies ever made, like in those then that top 10 list or whatever, because it's still relevant today. Jumping off from what Kelly was talking about, how does the popularity of this franchise and how it exists 40 years later and how we're still talking about Michael Myers is because we still identify with this masculine violence towards women. And we see this still as it's still a prevalent thing in our society very and is very heartbreaking. But we see how in Halloween it reasserts the patriarchal position as women as subjects to men. So the shape itself, he is a manifestation of evil or it is a manifestation of evil. Evil. And it is interesting how it can be directed as means of violence against women, particularly in the domestic setting. So what's interesting about the shape is that the violence that's coming from him is coming towards his sister. And later on, we'll see later in the series, it goes against his sister's daughter, his niece. So his a lot of his anger and aggression is directed towards a member of his family, mm-hmm. and particularly the women of his family. And when it comes to Lori, like we discuss how Lori, she is a same age as Judith when Michael becomes fixated upon her and he sees anyone close to Lori as a threat and what he does to in his desire to kill and to possess his, his sister strongly he kills anyone that gets close to her as like a punishment so as a means of isolating her and keeping her on her own and to himself and this is actually kind of like very reminiscent of masculinity of the idea of jealousy and possession that mm-hmm. when men when they can't control what's around them, they become very jealous and very possessive, and this leads to anger and eventually lead to violence. So I'm gonna say this right now, if your partner is jealous of you talking to someone else, that is not a good sign. (laughs) That is a huge red flag, that is not okay. It is not okay, jealousy is not okay, and also making your partner feel jealous, it's not okay. And this is where, where we're talking about in regards to this emotionalist energy of Michael Myers of the shape is that he is he he represents what anger and what unchecked masculinity can do to people in society if we are not discussing these things or having these conversations. Um, men become very fixated on goals and Mike and the shape represents what men will do to reach their goals and to claim their victory. And sometimes in situations and relationships and in family situations, this leads to domestic violence and domestic abuse because it knows no boundaries. It knows no class. You know, high achieving women experience domestic violence uh, as just as much as female immigrants, refugees, uh, disabled and rural women, indigenous and lower class women. So what's interesting is that we know that Lori Strode, she is of a middle class. Mm-hmm. Her father is a real estate agent. She lives in a nice neighborhood. She lives in suburbia. And when we get oh, yeah. the shape coming in, into suburbia, it is terrorizing the women of this uh, community, and it shows us that you can never really truly feel safe in your homes because he just makes his way in and he just kind of snakes in and he's stalking them and he's watching them and it's very unsettling, especially watching the first film and in mm-hmm. reading this article and like in fam- formulating these ideas around it, like I got very uncomfortable and I mm-hmm. can see 
see very much how this can also be a representation of domestic abuse and physical violence. I have an example of Michael Myers being a creeposaurus, talking about being really uncomfortable. Again, starting to do this research and then watching parts four and five, there is a moment in part five, so it's before Rachel dies. Like, my, it's a beautiful shot, Get, don't get me wrong. Um, but he is in her fucking closet. Mm, yes. And she's just like going about her business. And he's watching her and there's just like, he like slowly comes into the frame, which is kind of like in Halloween one in that darkened room. He just like slowly comes into frame and it's so creepy and so unsettling. Like he is in this dark room. He is in your closet. Yeah. And that's, you know, th this obsession of, of killing these women allows him to just like sneak into their lives. And it's... I just feel really feel like it's about obsession. Yeah. Unhealthy, unhealthy obsession. I like 100% agree with you in, in terms of watching this again and watch. Uh, and I know we'll talk later about stalking and about what he does and that his fixation on the women. But I just really can't help but get over like how the shape represents jealousy and that anger and that possessiveness. And like you said, that obsession when things aren't going your way or, you know, or you feel like you're you're being threatened, you're relationship in some way shape or form is being threatened of course you're gonna lash out and you know when I was doing research more like when I looked at Michael Myers and looked at the shape and looked at this idea of obsession and then I was like okay in the research I was like okay well he focuses on his family so I'm looking at Laurie Strode I'm looking at Jamie and then I started mm -hmm. looking into articles about domestic violence and it was so heartbreaking to just like read the numbers like you know that domestic violence is on the rise in 2019 it is still like there is a growing list of women and girls who are killed every 2.5 days in Canada, most often at the hands of someone they know or trusted. Like, it's mostly mm -hmm. either an intimate partner, a spouse, or a relative, and in more, in more than 80% of these cases go unreported. Yeah. And a lot of times, it comes because of controlling and violent behavior. That there yeah. have been situations where a woman is deciding to leave an abusive relationship or she's going to get divorced, and that partner loses their mind and either enacts revenge against the wife, either tries to kill her or strangle her or hurt her some way or they hurt the children and it's mm -hmm. still a problem like it's you know this violence against women especially in Canada it's still a very pervasive and it's also a systematic problem there's still not enough in the system to protect these women. It's at epidemic proportions I think it's something we don't discuss this goes unchecked yeah nothing I don't like what is being done about this I don't know if there is and why we just need to talk about this more why are women still dying and why is that on the rise like obviously nothing truly is being done about this it's unfathomable to me so in doing some of this research you know and just existing in our world and being a woman I have read countless experiences and heard countless stories from women about men like this and thankfully have never experienced men like that until recently. I was on the subway, minding my own business, listening to a podcast, not ours, and, <laughs> and I could see in the window of the subway car just a reflection. It was like this woman, younger girl, headphones, just like minding her own business as we all do on public transit. And these two guys come on. One guy sits near me, just sitting there. And then his friend goes and sits two seats away from this woman. And I can see that he starts talking to her. And she's very polite. But she also points to her phone. And kind of, if you can read body language, she was not interested in continuing this conversation. But he persists. And I don't understand 
the male behavior of persistence. Yeah. I would never even think about being that persistent to somebody that I was interested in or thought that they were attractive. Like, I'm fine with rejection. It's not a big deal. Anyways, so I could see that he is just talking to her for a longer period of time than is necessary because she has already shown disinterest. So I chime in and I take out my headphones and I say, hey, obviously she's not interested in talking to you, so why don't you just leave her alone? And that man, he has a switch that was immediately flipped and he immediately became defensive, aggressive, and very hostile to me. In the end, I am a bitch and I should shut my fucking mouth and that women like me get beat up all the time. So as much as I do not regret speaking up for this woman, that was slightly a terrifying situation to be in. Well, yeah, because you don't know how he was, like, he was verbally uh, abusive towards you, but you don't know if he was going to get right in your face or try and be a physical altercation. It could have been because that also wouldn't have seemingly been out of the realm of possibilities with how he's reacting. Yeah. And he just, you know, lots of swearing, a lot of aggression carried on and... It was obvious that there was no way to discuss anything with him logically. There was no reasoning. It just, he was immediately put off by me stepping in and saying, leaving, like, you should probably leave that woman alone. Yeah. And nobody else in the subway car stood up to this gentleman or said anything until a bit later on, because he keeps talking. He just kept going. He was running his mouth. And his friends started chiming in, saying that I was a bitch, so I was just a bitch. That's fine. One woman does chime in, but mainly she's just tired. It's the end of her workday, and she doesn't want to hear us. But literally nobody else stepped in. I'm not expecting folks to step in. I get it. It's very uncomfortable. You don't know how people are going to react, and sometimes they react very violently. And Mm -hmm. aggressively. So I get it. It's not comfortable. I wasn't highly comfortable. I was not antagonizing this gentleman. I put my headset in. I was like, I'm just going to like go about my business. But he kept talking to me. Like I could tell because he was looking at me. His mouth was moving. So I take my headset out again. I was like, are you still talking to me? I can't even believe this. And again, just running his mouth. I, I was making him seem like he was this pervert and he has a daughter and whatever. Again, I'm a fucking bitch. And I, you know, eventually... He goes away. Also, eventually, the girl does say that he was talking very disrespectfully to all of us. And he is. And he was. Eventually, he leaves. And I think, oh, this is the type of guy that I have heard so much about. I I guess I'm glad that I experienced this because I just, you know, you can sympathize, but it's hard to empathize if you don't experience these certain things in life. And I hadn't up until this point. And that really got my mind spinning and reading more articles about unchecked male aggression and violence. Mm-hmm. And again, this is under-researched. This is under-discussed. Some people think it's a woman's issue. I'm like, no, this is a human issue. Yeah. And we are the ones that are dying. So this is everyone's problem. How do, how do you expect women to go against this and try to get this going? But we're the ones negatively affected by this on a day-to-day basis. When Kelly was texting me that day when this was happening, it was so upsetting just to hear her have this experience on the subway. And on top of that, too, to think of like, no and I remember telling my partner about her having the experience and she was like and he was like well didn't anyone else in the subway wasn't it full and I'm like yeah it was you know busy it's you know Toronto subway you know the people are it's always busy but you know no one barely said anything and once again we're dealing with that 
I learned about this recently in a first aid course, that whole bystander syndrome that we just stand by and we see something happening and because we either don't want to get involved or we don't want that attention brought to us, we don't say anything when people are in these uncomfortable situations. And, you know, Kelly being um, a decent human being, recognizing that this, this guy was making someone feel uncomfortable and has no right to do that, even after she said, please leave me alone. And she steps in and says, hey, just leave her alone. But no one else kind of comes to that defense. Like there's no like building no. together, like, you know, Kelly's on her own. She defended another woman and that woman kind of just essentially just kind of stepped back and didn't, didn't say anything the entire time until the very end. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so in like, so upsetting. And like you said, like that unchecked masculinity, that unchecked aggression, that because and that which comes from that stems from like the fact that men can't handle their emotions or they don't are never really taught properly how to really deal with their emotions or to address how they're feeling about things and so a lot of times it's like this built up aggression that kind of get like you know because they don't know how to express themselves and on top of that too and we all we also know this is the sense of entitlement yes that men are are you know because they are of the patriarchy they can they can get away with saying these things that this guy can continue to keep hitting on a girl that she's not interested because you know we're taught all the time in like society that hey if you keep persisting and if you keep getting involved and keep being there she's eventually you're eventually going to wear her down to love you yeah no no oh. <laughs> it doesn't work that way and it should never work that way definitely not and a last kind of comment about that is that a- amongst that man's ramblings. He was a young guy, you know, a young, good-looking guy. So it's just, it's an absolute shame. And like, why do you act this way? Like, what is your life? And of course, nobody has ever stood up to him, I'm sure. And if they do, this is what they get. And like, that's not appropriate response to to criticism. But what he did say was that, you know, some women are shyer than others. I was like, are you kidding me? Yes, some women are shy, but also... We are fucking afraid of you. Yeah. So maybe the reason why she didn't really be more assertive in her body language and her verbalizing her discomfort was because she was afraid and just very uncomfortable and not just not comfortable to say that to you because we are afraid of you. Because look at what happened when I mentioned something to that guy. Can you imagine if that poor young girl had been a bit more assertive like I was? No. I would have had to still have gotten involved because he would have been a dick and it would have been a whole thing. It was even blown out of complete proportion. But no, it's not about us being shy. It's about us being fucking afraid. Which is, yeah, which is something I, in a way, can relate to that young woman because that is me. That is me on like on the OC transpo walking around like I live in fear perpetual fear whenever I'm out because I don't know how people are going to interact or engage with me and I'm always like trying to like keep my eyes looking straight ahead and not engaging with people because I'm afraid to say anything because I would be terrified in that whole experience you know applying trying to be polite and let them know that I'm not engaging but yet yeah. I also don't know how to like my, my resting bitch face sucks <laughs> I don't seem to I always seem to like not keep people away from yeah. me but honestly that doesn't even matter a man will still come up to you and engage with you despite how you look. If you have your headphones yeah. in, that is literally any human being. If we have headphones in, we're just like in our own world, we're in public transit. That is not an invitation. That is actually the exact opposite. We are not, unless yeah. we know who you are, like you're a friend or something, we're not inviting conversation. That is a way for mm-hmm. us to be in our own space. And when people come yeah. in, it doesn't matter. You know, just 
don't, don't engage. And so arresting bitch face, as you say, it doesn't matter. They're still going to engage with you. They are still going to approach you because you are a pretty girl. Do you want to talk about our next article, which was called The Horror Psychopath in 2018? So The Horror Psychopath. So this was an interesting article because it brought up this concept that we don't talk about a lot about. It happens quite often in many horror films and in my recent current research about this, uh, the psychopath as a stalker. Mm. And so I was really, in terms of like reading this article, this I was really drawn to this trope of the horror psychopath as someone who shows up they stalk female characters. They murder anyone in their paths. Yeah. They'll dupe authority figures to have them question the sanity of the of the female protagonist. So making it up so that that person is a figment of her imagination. Totally. There's a quote from that article that I saved because it's just so it's so prevalent in real life, but also in slashers and horror movies. Something that we have talked about. You have written great articles and great blog posts about, which is mistrusting the feminine, right? Yeah. So the quote yeah. was invincibility of the killer is helped along by the infrastructure of distrusting women because these women come out and they're like this is happening why don't you believe us yes. hello black christmas <laughs> yeah jesus <laughs> right and like even still like interesting enough and like i don't want to go into black christmas but watching it again at the very end they fucking leave jess oh alone my god in that house because the guy passes out and they're like oh no we need to get him to a hospital i'm like why aren't you taking her to a yeah. hospital? I don't understand what's well, happening here. But why do they need here? like 10 because... people to take the dude to a hospital? Yeah, right? Uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> so like the psychopath himself, he is in quotes from this article, institutionalization of terror personified. So he is a single stalker type killer that goes after young women who did not do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And the film Halloween really sets the example for this, that no matter how hard you try to kill them, the psychopath will survive time and time again. He is is the epitome of the guy that will never go away. Yes, um, which is terrifying. Yep. So Halloween itself as a film arose around a time of a crisis of masculinity. So there was a lot of anxiety around the reintegration of the Vietnam vets into American society. So, and we are seeing this crisis again in 2018, which is reminiscent with the hashtag MeToo movement or the, and I didn't know anything about this. I'm just learning about the incel phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So men hating women or men becoming voluntary celibates because they mm -hmm. hate women. And the link between domestic violence and mass shootings and the hashtag, you will not replace us white nationalists. Wowzers. So all part of the guys who don't die, who won't die mentality that surrounds the horror psychopath. I don't know much about the incel move, uh, phenomenon. I don't know if you do, Kelly. Like I know uh, my partner David was explaining it to me uh, a couple months ago about like actual men who are voluntarily celibate because they hate women. Yeah, I don't know the inner workings of these unfortunate men. It's kind of like the, well, I'm a nice guy. It's all the nice guys, quote unquote, nice mm. guys that um, are part of this. Um, there was the big issue in Toronto about a gentleman running down a whole bunch of people in a van who turned out to be one of those uh, incels. Um, oh, really? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I haven't like really done a lot of research into it. I find it like very disturbing. It's just, you know, women not giving them the time of day, but you know, they're nice guys. So why don't they? And why are men so yeah. angry about this? Again, in the end, it comes down to this insecurity and this sense of entitlement that you mentioned and just this, that violence and that unchecked um, aggression 
that men have that is appropriate for them to to have. That's like the only emotion for them to express. So no, well, it's just interesting because it's like it was terrifying for me to to learn yeah. about this, right? Because yeah, like, and I and I know that there are a lot of gamers who are incel who consider themselves oh, incels. Boy. Like it's just part of kind of like part of that internet world that like I moved away mm-hmm. from many many years years ago. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with now in 2018, 2019. Yeah. yeah. We see the shape as a beneficiary of the patriarchy, so of a sense of entitlement, because we see him stalking and killing women. He is unstoppable, and the audience becomes a part of his violence against women. And this is what we see in terms of the slasher genre. We see that there's this insistence of men making rules and thus traumatizing women, which is what we're seeing now parallel in real life. Oh, completely, completely. One of the things that really came up for me in reading this article was the concept of stalking. Mm. It is terrifying. I myself have been stalked twice in my life. It is um, one person was just someone who just really wanted, really, really wanted to be my friend. Um, it just couldn't take no. And one was an ex-boyfriend. It is a really terrifying experience and really makes you feel very unsafe and very unsure of yourself. When things that traumatically happen in your life, sometimes it triggers those moments. So when I was looking into this because that's essentially what Michael Myers Mm -hmm. does what the shape does he stalks his Mm -hmm. victims he is unrelentless he is hunting them in my research I've discovered that January is actually stalking awareness Mm. month because this is an invisible crime that goes unnoticed Mm -hmm. and most times when women are leaving abusive relationships this is when stalking often Mm -hmm. occurs so stalking itself is defined as repeated and unwanted attention that causes a person to fear for their safety or for the safety of someone they know and in 2014 this is in canada almost two million uh, canadians reported being victims of stalking stats are about nine out of ten stalkers are men and most often women are the victims Mm -hmm. and which is really interesting is that stalkers are often, like he says, someone we know. They're either family or former partner, family member or former partners, and they often tragically end in physical mm-hmm. violence or are usually a precursor to homicide mm-hmm. in a form of murder. One of the things that I find is that popular media frames stalking as semi-romantic behavior, yeah. which then silences real victims of stalking because they, they minimize and rationalize the behavior. I think that was a big issue at Twilight. Yes. Mm. Never watched the movies or read the books, but that was, that's what I read, like people's reactions to it and how it was very unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. There's also uh, a new series called You on Netflix. Yep. Once again, romanticizing stalking, mm-hmm. or is it? I don't know. I won't I watch it because it. I'm just like, I don't, I am, I have no interest in any way, shape or form of people following other people and just making them feel generally unsafe and uncomfortable, mm-hmm. especially because in Canada, there's very little protection for victims of stalking, but two to five victims will file a criminal report that will just get lost in the system. Less than a quarter of these cases will see charges laid against the perpetrator, and the steps to protect victims are restraining orders, which get violated about 47% of the time. It, like I said, it's an invisible crime. Yeah. It's just something that cannot be regulated. And more often than not, like what people are trying to do now is just a help victims break their silence. So if you're being stalked, talk about it, let people mm-hmm. know. I was very fortunate in my situations that I was able to communicate to people. I had people close enough to me. I even actually had an ex-boyfriend of prior to this other ex who, when I told him what happened, made it his like, made it imperative that he was around yeah. to make sure that I was okay until it eventually stopped. Yeah. And then 
obviously just pressure for more resources because we just we know like stalking at some point shape or form leads to some form of domestic violence and that's what made me feel very uncomfortable about watching Halloween again because when I realized these things and reading these articles I was just like this is really dark and really upsetting completely and so thankfully in your two experiences that it's not result in physical violence and death unless you're a ghost right now (laughs) but thankfully you're still here Jess I am still here again it goes down to nobody's nobody's really talking about it where are the resources where's the protection stalking is related to our unchecked violence and aggression and control that and sense of entitlement that men feel over us so it's just sometimes I'm just slightly speechless by what happens in our world So, like, I have a question that just Mm -hmm. came up as I'm just thinking about this. So, in doing your research and the experience that you had and kind of, like, seeing the Halloween franchise, do you feel... How do you feel about how Michael Myers or The Shape is, like, often, like, so popularized? Like, I was at, like, the mall earlier today, you know, and there's, like, T-shirts. You can get, like, Michael Myers and stuff like that. But then when you, like, you know, I've read these articles Mm -hmm. and kind of had these experiences, like, how do you feel about that now? Like, well, like I said before, there this is just one interpretation and one mm-hmm. reading of the franchise. There's many different readings of it. This just spoke to me almost just more personally because I am a woman. And so, of course, that's going to speak to me a little bit more. But, I mean, Freddie is a child molester and murderer. True. Yeah. Um, and, we, you know, we talked about turning him into a horror icon and not like the women of the franchise in, in that episode of the podcast. But, again, it's just one represent... Sorry, one interpretation of the shape and who he is so I'm still fine with people you know viewing him as a slasher horror icon because they've done that with everybody else and this is just one reading of it do I see the series a little bit differently I can't not see it any different way now Hmm. um I'm still fine with people if they want to do that yeah. Um, I also have Halloween t-shirts and I think I just have one, but it's just one interpretation of it. So I'm open to other interpretations. So this is kind of just the one that we went with because I think it was the most, I think it's almost the most obvious, but maybe it's just most obvious because of who we are as women and our experiences. Well, it's interesting because it didn't become the most obvious for me until I read this, these, these uh, two essays and I was like, oh, yeah okay now Mm -hmm. I see that right like before I was always in the impression that oh he's just a manifestation of evil he's just evil Mm -hmm. like and evil does what it will do and you know and I I I did read like you know Kenneth Muir idea of the whole like ego versus id um Mm -hmm. and him being Laurie's id there but I definitely like as you were talking about that and then kind of remembering yeah like yeah Freddy Krueger child molester murderer psychopath stuff like that but we like we hold him up to these like iconic status and just like Jason Voorhees doesn't really have any bad... He just kills everyone. He's, like, the pure yeah. evil one. He's just like, I just kill. I I feel like he is the pure evil one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just like, you guys, I died young. You killed my mother, so I, I'm just going to kill you all. Like, I, uh-huh. I don't yep. represent anything in society. <laughs> just, yeah. I represent chaos. There you go. Jason Voorhees is just a representation of chaos. Love it. I love it. So that's kind of just where I come at it from now. 
also with regards to that article called The Horror Psychopath in 2018, yeah, it's all about, and we see that in a bunch of horror films, but definitely these slashers, and especially in these, like, the top three of the uh, the 80s, but it's about the guy that won't die. He's never going to go away. Like, one time we had the, you know, the monsters of old, you know, Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and the Wolfman and all of that. So they were replaced by these wonderful male psychopaths <laughs> who didn't die. They didn't go away. No. So, of course, that's much more relatable than those other horror films, especially to those that experience this on a day-to-day basis, which is us as women. And we all love our final girls. Final girls are are wonderful. And I think that's a portion of what makes, you know, slashes in the horror genre quite empowering. Yeah. And the final girl, quote unquote, wins in the end. And this article had really great things to say about women in, in horror. And so it talks about, so we can root for her. She kind of wins in the end, but there's sequels. This guy keeps coming over and over. He keeps coming back and he's coming after new women each time, like in real life. Yes. And women have to figure out how to survive over and over again. It's an open wound that never heals. And Jess mentioned about how these films, but you know, talking about Halloween, make these rules and they traumatize women. So a quote from this article was that the slasher film's insistence on men who make rules and traumatize women and who are still able to continue along in that way has a brutal, you know, resemblance to the real world. Men in power from Bill Cosby to Harvey Weinstein have consistently exerted their will over women who think that they know the rules, like our final girls, or are ignorant of the fact that they're in a guy's place. Or, you know, these women are in a horror movie, right? You know the rules, you're in a movie. But what we as a society has finally begun to acknowledge is that they do know, and they always have, women. We always know. We know these rules. We know what we're dealing with. Yep. But it is bigger than us. One quote that I want to state. So Robin Wood, who has written a lot about horror films and film in general as a film critic, he states, Myers is not the beyond, from hell or out of space, or even the Texas backwoods. He is indeed from the heart of normality. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the Halloween franchise like even more terrifying, that it's just not... There is no fantastical element to Michael Myers to the shape is that he represents what is truly evil in society and that is the the trauma that we we can place people in the the fear of being stalked the fear of being hurt or injured family violence like I keep thinking about how you know what Lori experiences and then we see this later on in Halloween 4 and 5 and what a child like what Jamie experiences as a child growing growing up this Mm-hmm. form of um, familial violence yeah, in the form of her uncle you know instead of like you know in, we have like situations where children are being abused by family members well we have Jamie being hunted and going to be killed by her her uncle what's the boogeyman as a matter of fact it was so next we're going to talk about the woman behind the mask, Deborah Hill. We wouldn't be the spinsters of horror, a project celebrating women in horror, and not talk about Deborah Hill. So in the opening credits of Halloween, it states, bold and clear, 
a Deborah Hill production. Yes. And a long, long, let's say like 20 years ago, I didn't know who Deborah Hill was. It just wasn't a thing. I knew who John Carpenter was. I was of the camp that had no idea who Deborah Hill was. Maybe now like five to eight years ago, I figured out who she was. I knew of her. Um, Jess didn't know who she was before this. No, and I was actually quite uh, quite happy that mm-hmm. I got to learn quite a bit more about her in terms of uh, doing this podcast. And today, when I was watching Halloween with my other partner, and at the end, she says, oh, Halloween, uh, based upon John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. She's like, yeah. oh, I didn't know that a woman like mm-hmm. hollow- co-wrote yeah. Halloween. And I was like, oh, let me tell you all about Deborah Hill. Yes, <laughs> and I love that, right? I don't, I mean... It's never too late to learn about the brilliance of somebody. So yeah. there was this wonderful article. There's a good number of articles and information out there about her. We recommend doing so. So it was called This Halloween, We're Remembering Deborah Hill by Clark Wolf. It was from the Nerdist website. It was with regards to a Halloween screening that she went to. So a quote is, after a wonderful Q&A, the lights went low and the opening credits rolled. As to be expected at a sold-out fan screening, cheers erupted at the sight of John Carpenter's name. There was applause for Jamie Lee and PJ Souls, as well as cinematographer Dean Cundy. Then, producer Deborah Hill's name graced the screen and I started to applaud. But a curiously thing happened. I found myself to be the only one. No one else cheered for Hill. I was shocked. In a room full of diehard horror nerds, not one of them would clap for her. So Deborah Hill co-wrote Halloween with John Carpenter. They raised money together from their work on Assault on Precinct 13 to create Halloween. And after that, they teamed up numerous times to create iconic horror films like they did Halloween number two, The Fog, and Escape from Mm. L.A. So overall, we would not have Halloween if it was not for Deborah Hill. She also went on to produce Halloween 1 through 3, She did The Fog, The Dead Zone, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. Also, kind of like cult favorites of Clue, Adventures in Babysitting, and Big Top Pee Wee. So she's had her hands in a lot of pop culture and horror movies, so we should all know her name. So Deborah Hill was once a babysitter herself and had a taste for 1950s B-horror movies. So Hill once said about Laurie Strode, Lori endured as a symbol of female resolve, fending off her attacker and rebuilding her life. That Lori was a strong character who was very willful and feared nothing. Here was a woman who didn't run from danger, but stepped up to it. And finally, Lori was resourceful and kind, quiet, but defiant. And what's really interesting, too, because when it came to casting the character of Lori Strode, Deborah Hill really advocated for Jamie Lee Curtis to be hired on to work as Lori because she felt that she would really portray the image or the idea that she had written for the character of Lori. And I think that was something that was really great. And that was actually something that she was really known for was not only just um, her strong female characters, but the fact that she also advocated for a lot of people in the movie industry to be in the positions that they are today. You know, when she hired on Dean Cundy for the cinematography and he's worked with, he worked with Car- uh, Carpenter since then. She was also a mentor for other women in the industry, such as Stacey Shear, who is producer of Aaron Brockovich and Django Unchained. She also nurtured the talents of James Cameron, who is special effects, and Jeffrey Shirnavov, who was her second assistant director, who is also known in the industry. She's had her hands in a lot of pots. It was great. She was awesome. And she got, she was a woman who got shit done. She was like, what? So yeah, producer 
of Halloween. So she made sure the film stayed on budget. She took care of all the shooting of the movie. Like she knew like every little detail of everything that needed to happen. And like, that's Mm -hmm. what I love that she was like the type of person who was really good at business and she knew how to keep track of her of things, but people loved her. And she was the type of person who like, she would come onto a set. She knew every job that she had to do on this and she was very passionate about solving problems. And that's Mm -hmm. really amazing. I love people like that. What was also really important is that because of everything that she knew and what she had to do in the um, making a film, she really established herself in a boys club and showed that she was very, a very thorough and a very capable producer at the time. She was recognized in 2003 by Women in Film for being a trailblazer for female producers of all genres. Mm-hmm. And she said of this award that I hope someday that there won't be a need for women in film, that there mm. will be people in film and that yes. there'll be equal pay and equal rights and equal jobs opportunities for everybody everyone yes please so she was a mentor to a lot of people in the film industry she was very um determined to help make sure there was equal opportunity for women and being producers and also too she was also being quoted by john carpenter as being the godmother of indie filmmaking she had a passion for not just movies about women or women's ideas but films about everybody horror films action films comedies mm-hmm. that really if it wasn't for deborah hill we wouldn't have Halloween we wouldn't have Lori we wouldn't have the final girl we had today you just yeah she's important folks know her name the boogeyman can only come out on Halloween night right right while I'm here tonight I'm not about to let anything happen to you okay so now we're gonna get into the spinsters final thoughts out of the big three horror franchises of the 80s Halloween is the one that that endures it is the we had a 2018 release with more planned it is the one that has had such longevity. We, of course, had remakes of Nightmare on Elm Street. We had a remake of Friday the 13th. There was a Friday the 13th game. But beyond that, there's nothing. And there's reasons for that. And the reasons for that are what we have talked about. The the icon of the shape and the origins and motivations or lack thereof of Michael Myers. Um, But out of the research and the discussions that we've had, I definitely feel quite strongly towards this concept of unchecked masculinity, the obsession and compulsion. And it's something that we connected with in 1978 and we do so in upcoming 2020. I don't think in our lifetime that that is ever going to stop being relatable. Maybe never until we do something about this. We talked about this unchecked male violence. We're not talking about it. It's an epidemic. And in order for women and everyone to be safe, it needs to become a priority. We need to get this under check because it is out of control we talked about incels that means that things are out of control and we need to fix this is this just a women's issue is it really no it is a human issue it's a human rights issue how can we as women stop this from happening to us i want an answer for that we need everyone on board especially men We need your voices as well. We need authentic, genuine voices, and we need your help. I read this article called, Why Did Michael Myers Start Killing? Origin and Background, explained for Halloween 2018 by Andrew Whalen. And he stated, We understand that Michael Myers is meant to be empty of motive. He is a force of nature, the shape, the boogeyman. This is in part because the focus is meant to be on Laurie and how how a normal human reacts to extraordinary violence and terror. And that is another thought for another day, but maybe we aren't meant to understand the shape. Maybe in the end, it's all about women and survival and for us to relate to them and figure it out for ourselves. And maybe it's not about him at all. And it's about us. 
Well, I like how you uh, bring up that idea, that concept of what it is to be about Laurie, because I know when I look at this series, and I know I talked about it in my latest blog post, that we see how Laurie's story, how she deals with this violence against her, how she deals with being stalked and being hunted uh, or being a prey to Mm -hmm. this unchecked masculinity and how she is eventually able to overcome it in the moment and she's able to fight it off and to protect herself but then of course we see the trauma and how that impacts you years later and I know I talk about this in great depth in my blog post about how Lori deals with her trauma you know we see it in the second Halloween you know the you know the, the calm after the storm like what she's experienced and we see that she goes very comatose throughout the rest of that film definitely is a story about how Lori deals with trauma but just how women deal with trauma in general and just how mm-hmm. anyone deals with trauma when it happens and when you experience it the Halloween franchise the story of Michael Myers, the shape, you know, it really provided the basis for a lot of our slasher films. And we know everyone looks at it as like the OG slasher and setting up the formula and the tropes. But it's a film series that endures because of the themes that it approaches are, like Kelly said, are still relevant today. They still exist. Stalking still exists. Violence against women still exist. Domestic violence, dysfunction in families, all this still exists today and it is a prevalent problem and it will not and it does not go away until we start saying something or doing something about it. Breaking away from that bystander syndrome. If you see something that's not right, say something. That's the only way we're going to stop these things. This is the only way we're going to stop these like Michael Myers of society, unchecked violence by calling it out. You know, obviously protect yourself. Like I'm not I'm not advocating people to start going out there and being like, you know, vigilante justice and stuff like that but if we don't do anything we're allowing this problem to continue to exist we're allowing the shape to continue to exist and Michael Myers the shape can be molded to represent whatever we are horrified about in this day and age and sadly we're still horrified as women we are still terrified to walk the streets alone at night we're still terrified of being alone or having to sit on a bus and being approached by someone we don't want talking to us it is still a very prevalent problem so for myself the Halloween franchise while it's not my favorite and I think it's not my favorite because of the dark elements it it really relates to but I also think it's kind of important because it allows for us to reckon to see those things and recognize them for what they are and maybe try to work with what we know to correct that in this day and age that ends our final episode on the horror icons from the 1980s Oh, we want to thank Dance the Dead for our intro and outro music Roe Beast and Brandon for all of his hard work on our promotional materials also to all of you listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com. We're on Facebook, Spinsters of Horror. You can also find us on Twitter at Horror Spinsters and Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and any podcasting app that you listen to us on. We also have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase one of our t-shirts or buy our stickers from our shop. We also have a donation button located on the main page if you like to contribute. So next month, we return to Sunnydale to talk about seasons four and five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where we'll be looking at themes such as queerness in the show, the man, Joss Whedon himself, and the end of Buffy. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female.